Hello and welcome to our October Publications Podcast. I'm Ed Vitale from the University of Leeds and I'm Chair of the Lupus Forum. And this month, I'm delighted to be joined by my colleague, Professor Victoria Worth. She's Chief of the Division of Dermatology at the Philadelphia Veterans Administration Hospital. Hi, Vicky. Hello, it's great to be here. Uh, and I am the Chief of the Division of Dermatology and also a Professor of Medicine and Dermatology at the University of Pennsylvania and the Philadelphia Veterans Administration Hospital. And happy to be here with you, Ed. Thanks, that's great. So um, we'll go on to our first paper. And this is one that, um, that I had a look at. This is one by Cho et al. It's a paper published in Lancet Rheumatology. Um, pretty big study. It was done by the Asia Pacific Lupus Collaboration. And they used their data to ask questions about whether therapy should be tapered. So we've just presented the EULA guidelines on SLE on a podcast we did a week ago and mentioned that this, this debate about whether tape steroids could get down to five milligrams or whether you really have to try to stop them and so this is quite timely because this is what they're looking at here they're asking about whether treatment tapering especially glucocorticoids um, would lead to flares and whether tapering was more successful or more appropriate in patients who were in different definitions of low disease activity or emission so they looked at LLDAS which means Sleedi score is four or less, nothing in the major organs, nothing new, and prednisolone less than 7.5. Or Doris remission, which asks for a clinical Sleedi of zero. So in other words, you can't have any measurable symptoms and signs, but you could still have double-stranded DNA or complement points and prednisolone less than or equal to five. Or what they called complete remission on therapy, which is where the Sleedi really had to be zero and prednisolone five milligrams or less. So this study, they had this, they, they assessed 4,000 patients. They got 3,000 in the study, uh, pretty typical for an established lupus cohort. They assessed 14,000 visits where patients were in LLDAS or remission. And uh, a just under 10,000 of those, they had patients who continued therapy. And in those, 11.4% had a flare, and 20% of those flares were severe, compared to just over 3,000 patients where patients tapered therapy. And in those, 17% flare, of which 21% was severe. So in other words, flares were more common if you tapered, which is not too surprising, but important to note. Um, and then what they also looked at, which I think was quite helpful, was then they looked at tapering attempts that were, that were maintained according to those different definitions, LLDAS, um, Doris remission or complete remission. And the answer was that tapering steroids was more likely to be successful if patients were in LLDAS or in remission and complete remission, so with the normal serology as well, was the lowest flare risk. Um, so uh, in other words, the conclusion was that drug tapering needs to be quite carefully considered based on the patient's situation, because if it's not done right, it could lead to a flare, but sustained complete remission has the best chance of a successful taper. 
what did you think about that one? Does that sound like what goes on in your practice? Yes. I mean, I think it's really interesting because, you know, we, we always talk about how bad steroids are and how people can't, shouldn't be on steroids and which is, you know, certainly part of what we're talking about here. And yet um, we're finding that if we try to take too much, we're going to get flares, which I think is uh, people's clinical uh, experience. So um, I think it's a balancing act and one that, you know, many of us uh, have had to deal with for a long period of time. Yeah, I mean, obviously, this I thought this this paper obviously it wasn't randomized here. So exactly why people were making these different decisions in practice, obviously, they were doing it with their best clinical intention. There was that French randomized study, which where patients either continued or tapered their prednisolone, and you got more flares if you tapered them. Although, um, I think many people have said, well, if you taper slowly enough you want it to be successful and the other thing people have thought about is does this just tell us that you should be adding on more therapies to come, come off so you know if you've if you've tried one immunosuppressant you're stuck on five milligrams of prednisolone does that mean you have to that's it now you're going to be on five milligrams of prednisolone forever or is adding on more therapies going to help you get off that which i guess we don't completely know well, that's why we're doing our studies to try to get better therapies yeah, in the first but we, place. But we do know that most <laughs> of these drugs now are shown to reduce steroid use as well as reduce disease activity, aren't they? So it would seem encouraging. But um, so I, I think, yeah, I think that 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 point will remain a little bit controversial. But my person, my own personal practice, is to try to get people off if I think I can, but to look at everything I can about their situation to do it. And I, I mean, I think the other way, the other way to look at this, though, is that people may just, you know, if they flare a couple of times as you've tried to taper, there will be a cohort of people that probably have to be maintained on a very low dose until we find the right therapies to get them into yeah. complete remission. Yeah. Oh, great. Should we go on to the next one? Absolutely. So our next slide or our next uh paper is a very interesting paper that talks about developing a novel clinical outcomes assessment for systemic lupus. And it's a, been a, a work in progress now for, a, for over a, well over a year. Um, and it's been very uh, deliberate in the approach that's been taken. And so this paper is really just outlining what the goals are of the group and what's been accomplished so far. And so the objective is to develop a new outcome assessment that perhaps will work better than the ones we have right now. As we know, a lot of our lupus trials fail. A lot of our trials, um, even within the same phase trial of two phase three trials, we come up with different results. Um, and often they fail going from phase two to phase three, which could be due to many things. But one of the one of the considerations is that the outcome measures that we use are really okay for activity, um, but they're really not, uh, they weren't developed with uh, looking at response over time in a, in a, in a trial. And um, we, they haven't really been properly validated in that way. And so we use different composites of different measures, but none of them are really perfect. And so this is an effort to try to, in a global way, develop a new outcome measure and, and kind of get a international agreement. And I think what is unique here is that it's been a combination of SLE clinician academics, uh, also dermatology, also nephrology, 
and also uh, patients and patient representatives, which are a very important part of this because in reality, we're trying to measure what is an important change for patients and what bothers the patients the most. And so there's been really, uh, I would say, very important input, input from both the clinicians and the patients, as well as industry partners and with regulatory experts that have been also uh, contributing over the time of many, many meetings that have occurred as we've worked through a protocol that um, has been developed very carefully and signed off by everybody. And we're very systematically going through to, to complete um, the different elements of the protocol. And so um, again, to develop this, uh, the, the first had to have a consensus about what are we trying to do. And so uh, the high level concept to be measured by the uh, outcome measure is that the active immune mediated disease manifestations that impact on the patient and are modifiable by therapy to reduce or control disease activity. And so this measure has been, uh, again, developed with a lot of this in mind. This paper really outlines the process, what it's accomplished so far, and also where it's going in the future in terms of developing and then validating um, a measure that can be used uh, in, in these trials. And so I think this is going to be uh, really a very interesting effort and hopefully will yield a result that will help improve the measurement of activity and outcomes uh, over time in trials. I think that's the summary that I have thus far. Yeah. Do you have any I, thoughts about this? I mean, you and I have both been involved in this, of, of course, right. and 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 so I, I've thought about it a lot. And I think, um, as 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 you say, the really important thing about the process up to this date, isn't it, is is showing that you get approval um, that what we've done is acceptable by by patients, by clinicians, by regulators, that we're measuring the things that matter. But the other thing I've become aware of is the way that what's what's being done here is very much designed for trials and measuring response and showing improvement um but that's not maybe maybe it's a slightly different role from the other disease activity instruments that we already use so one of the problems with bilag and sleda is they weren't specifically designed for trials they were just designed to assess a patient overall which could be for the clinic for an epidemiology study um and in this process what's being defined is some organ features some domains or symptoms or problems have been defined and it's not attempting to be comprehensive so it's not we're not trying to say we're measuring every single feature that can possibly occur in lupus like the bilag does um features were kind of selected if they're important but also if like there's a feasible way to measure this um and and we think that improvement can be seen with therapy so it's it's really designed to, to test the efficacy of drugs rather than to tell you how to assess your patients in, in the clinic, I think. Absolutely. And I think, again, because it's been developed uh, with really so much input, um, I think it will hopefully maximize the ability to uh, not just have is it is the um you know, the skin rash there or not, which is sort of what we see with the sleet eye, um, or a very complicated way of looking at percentages of, of surface area. But can we really figure out a way that is can be validated that will measure skin improvement in the context of a trial? And, and reviewing the literature is going to be really important and seeing what works, what doesn't work, and coming to agreement as a group. So, yeah, I, exactly. I, so so that's the other thing, isn't it? It's like the process is quite complex in how to develop this outcome measure. But in the end, I hope that the, what, what it gets measured will actually be quite intuitive. Um, so for the arthritis part of it, for example, you know, we clinicians, 
rheumatologists are all pretty used to you count the number of joints that are abnormal you watch the, that number come down with with the course of a treatment and it's kind of frustrating that we don't really do that in trials at the moment where we use the where we use the sri4 or the sleedi and i think this will come a bit closer to that so it it should be important and most importantly it should lead to more more drugs getting through these trials and getting licensed into the clinic Exactly. Totally agree. And I think this is the direction, actually, some trials are going in where they are doing things like joint counts, swollen and tender. But this is going to be more, you know, in a in a much more, uh, I think, reproducible way that could be using the same measure and the same measurements in uh, for, between trials. And so we can yeah. really compare. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it should, it's, it's important. And I think it's over to you. So the next paper is one I had a look at. So this is a small study, but it was quite an interesting one. So we're on to lupus nephritis now. Um, so this was a study done in Argentina about repeat kidney biopsies in patients who were in the Bliss LM study. So it's an interesting why they did this study, because essentially it's one center, which and that one center had enrolled 20 patients into the randomized controlled trial, which is quite a large amount for one center. But what it allowed them to do was to look at after their patients had finished the trial and the paper had been published, they took a look at their patients to see what else they could learn about them. I, I, it's always can be quite nice when you take a smaller group of patients who they're just very close to you. You can, you can, you know, you really know these people, what these patterns, these patients inside out and taking a much more detailed look, even though you don't get the statistical power of a big study. So of their 20 patients, they were quite conveniently, they got 10 on each arm. So 10 of the patients had had mycophenolate and placebo. And the other 10 patients had been randomized to mycophenolate and belimumab. And they'd finished their whole study follow-up. And then in the remaining part of the study, uh, it, after the end of the study follow-up, the remaining 36 months, they looked at their clinical response and they also did a re-biopsy. Uh, so they could look at not just whether they got a complete clinical response, but also a complete histological remission. And that's really the key thing here. Um, and that, so they got all 10 patients on mycophenolate got the complete clinical response. Um, seven out of 10 of the placebo patients did. So favored belimumab in small numbers. But what we didn't know from the belimumab study is that this is backed up histologically. So nine out of 10 patients on belimumab had complete histological response compared with only five out of 10 on placebo. So um, yes, it's a small study, um, but I do think uh, especially with more drugs being licensed, it becomes quite important with lupus nephritis studies to have this histological outcome, because if you don't have that, what you're really looking at is level of proteinuria and EGFR, and you're using that to decide whether your treatment's been effective or not. And we know that some patients who have improvement in those things actually aren't complete, you know, histologically, they may not always be necessarily completely histologically in remission. So that, that's been shown quite quite well um uh and so it's this is pro providing tissue level evidence of the benefit of the therapy right and i think uh this is very important as you mentioned and the idea of actually 
doing um, biopsies and you know, repeat biopsies to be able to determine what's going on, I think is uh, is the concept that people are thinking about much more. And I think that this really demonstrates the power of doing that. Um, I think um, the other thing to consider is that if you look at those who had a complete clinical response, you can see that there that that did not correlate with a complete histologic response, which we know, um, but it just reemphasizes uh, the fact that we, we can't always know what's going on in, yeah. without a biopsy. And that was a paper uh, I discussed with Brad Rovin um, earlier in the year that it was a, so this one that paper had lots of different therapies it wasn't about a trial but but then that was the key point was that lots of patients who were felt to be clinically doing well on their biopsies still had um some active disease um, and maybe that's why they often flare and we have this debate how long do we need to continue these therapies well patients three years after treatment when some people might think, oh, it's time to stop the therapy. Well, if you knew that that person histologically still had inflammation in the kidney, you might, you, you might, you might not do that. Um, and I, I think in the long term, that's one of the big questions that we'll, we'll, we need to answer. Actually, is that we're going to use more of these combination therapies, more of these high cost drugs to induce remissions in lupus nephritis? But how long do you continue it for? Three years, five years? I think we we need to answer that. I mean, I think the other point is it would be very interesting to know in those who had a clinical response, how was that even defined? Because I think we're learning more and more about the degree of proteinuria that can be associated with, with renal disease. And so, you know, I think there's more, there's probably more that we can be even doing in terms of the, of the at the uh, protein level. In yeah, the actually, that's one of the other parts of the, um, of the new outcome measure study that we were just discussing on the previous slides yeah. was to, to sort of try and systematically say, do we really know what level of proteinuria you have at the start, how much it needs to improve? Uh, patients with class five will naturally get a slower reduction in their proteinuria compared to play, patients with class four, but that doesn't necessarily mean they're at a greater risk of renal failure. So the, the biomarker needs a bit of thought into exactly how we use it. Exactly. Okay. So I think we can probably move on to the next paper. Yeah. And this is one that I uh, know quite well. Um, it relates to cardiovascular events and lupus. And I think we're all pretty used to thinking about uh, the fact that patients with FLA have an increased risk of, of uh, atherosclerotic events. And we were interested in our population of more cutaneous lupus patients to uh, be able to compare the rate of atherosclerotic events and the control of their risk factors um, to patients who had SLE with CLE. And so we had a group of 370 patients that we've been following longitudinally for well over a decade. Um, and we were able to basically look at different risk factors that these patients had. And this was really uh, based on a paper that we wrote, actually wrote about two or three years ago uh, that's referenced in, in, in this particular paper that uh, talks about the fact that probably we need more stringent LDL uh, guidance for patients who are at high risk, and that would be our lupus patients. Um, and so we tolerate high cholesterols maybe more so than we should when, when you look at other high-risk patients, whether they be diabetics or otherwise, um, the, the goal is really actually lower LDL. And so 
uh, by these guidelines that were published, it, it uh, became quite pretty evident that many of our patients um, had very high or had higher levels of LDL than what was being recommended. Uh, in fact, 67% of the patients. And uh, and so this is really concerning, especially since 90% of the patients had uh, had documented internal medicine type uh, physicians who were following them. And uh, there has been, you know, a lot of our interest in trying to figure out who's going to manage the, the high cholesterols that we're finding in a lot of these patients. So there are about 71% of these patients, very high number, 72% had hypertension and very often undertreated repeated measures of being high um, or untreated. And so that was very concerning, uh, given at least with SLE patients, we know the increased risk. Uh, and then also the current smokers, and there were quite a number of those, but uh, there was no documented smoking cessation counseling uh, on the part of the primaries or referrals. And then um, a number, 278 patients qualified for two widely used online uh, calculators for risk of atherosclerotic disease. And we found somewhat different results for these different calculators, which is also you know, something to think about. How do we figure out who's at high risk? And so at the end of the day, though, what we did find is that in the actual risk or the actual um, incidence of atherosclerotic disease was 13.5% in the patients who had CLE only, and it was actually just minimally higher, 13.8%, I believe, in the patients who had um, CLE with SLE. So there was a high risk for both groups. And so it really speaks to the idea that we really need to do a much better job of managing risk factors uh, in our patients and being advocates for making sure um, that they get uh, reasonable care. Yeah, that's, that last fact quite surprised me, actually, because if you'd asked me to guess, I would have thought that the SLE patients would have higher cardiovascular risk because... I think about things like renal involvement is a cardiovascular risk and taking a lot of steroids is and probably systemic inflammation. And I, so I, I might have guessed that the ones with SLE would have a higher cardiovascular risk, but actually that's that's not really seen. CLE alone was was pretty comparable. I exactly. suppose the fact that smoking is so associated with CLE may be one factor of that in, in there. But mm -hmm. No, totally. But their their LDLs are you know very many of them are quite high and um, we really have started working more with pre uh, preventive cardiologists because even regular cardiologists don't necessarily manage um, the lipids to the level uh, that probably would be required to have more of a preventive role in in these types of patients. Yeah, and I think uh, and I do and I, I it, again it, it's in tune with some other things I've looked we've looked at about you know, audits of guidelines and things, that these things are not always followed in SLE either. And I, I guess it's, it's a challenge because you've got a lot of you know, SLE patients have a lot of different clinical problems. They have a high pill burden already, um, but it's important. The better we get at treating lupus, the more we see cardiovascular disease as the, one of the biggest causes of morbidity and mortality. Exactly. Okay. And if we go on to the last one, so this is about a ULAR recommendation, but actually it's not it's not the final recommendation. It's a it's a literature review. Um, so I'll cover it quite briefly, but I, I, I think it's an interesting one to keep an eye on. So um, when these ULAR 
guideline papers get written, what usually happens is, first of all, you assemble a task force with all the different disciplines and specialists you want. You write some PICOs, so some research questions that you that you want to answer in your project, and then conduct a literature review, uh, a sort of systematic literature which gets published. Uh, and that's what this paper is. And then there'll be another stage, after, like a fourth stage after that, which is for, for the, the task force to actually write some guidelines and vote on them. So this, this is a literature review, not the guideline, but um, they, they, you, they, you still get a bit of a picture about what are the main things seen. This is about non-pharmacological man pharmacological management of systemic lupus erythematosus and systemic sclerosis. So um, they, they decided to do both diseases together, although there'll clearly be some differences between them when I focused on the lupus part here. Um, but the, 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 the key points seen from a, a bird's eye view of the literature were lots of studies on physical activity um, and physical activity was generally felt to be effective in both lupus and in scleroderma. Uh, there were also quite a lot of studies on education and self-management. And there were some studies in SLE that reported that psychological interventions could improve quality of life. There were also some on scleroderma about phototherapy and laser treatment to improve cutaneous manifestations, although I don't think we're generally going to recommend those for, for our, our SLE patients. Um, so uh, I thought this was interesting as a resource to find the literature because this is, patients often ask about these things uh, and, it, and the, these literature reviews can be very helpful in identifying the right studies to answer those questions um, but I, 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 I'm, I am very interested to see what happens when the task force really take an expert look at all of these data because some of the things I was wondering were things like okay so physical activity that that makes sense slips off the tongue easily but exactly what is being proposed what kind of physical activity what sort of patients what kind of lupus um, how effective how do you need to deliver it and similarly and similar with psychological interventions those are those terms those are quite broad terms exactly what what needs to be given and for whom yeah and you know i think the other thing is um you know this says non-pharmacologic but there are a lot of uh of uh, things that patients are doing that might not be considered medications, but are, you know, supplements and herbal things. And you kind of wonder where that would get lumped in, in terms of this kind of evaluation. Um, Cause I think they, some of these are immunostimulatory and may not be so healthy in systemic lupus. So yeah. it's uh, something I don't think they address, but again, something that, you know, is worth thinking yeah. about. That's, I mean, that's right. I'm, I'm working on the British guidelines at the moment and, you know, what everyone said patients are always asking about what can I do with my diet and we we don't really know very well um and the literature doesn't really uh, doesn't really tell us um so there's uh yeah, yeah it, 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 we, we say self-management is good but we need to give people the tools onto what they need to do to self-manage I guess and we maybe need to know more than we know yeah which is also yeah, exactly so uh, that's our last paper, and that's all we've got time for today. So thank you for joining me, Vicky. It's great to have your insights. Great to talk to you. Thank you very uh, much. 
And, and thank you everyone for listening. So as always, you can find these slides online. So we've done the full slide decks on the Cho and Alvar papers. And there are single slide summaries of more studies at lupus-forum.com. The Lupus Forum is free to access. All our content is free to download. And if you register for updates on the Lupus Forum, then you'll get an email whenever there's new content available. So you can follow us on Lupus Forum or One Word on Twitter and on LinkedIn. Thanks again and see you next time. Bye-bye.